0: Tune in to radical philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument, with words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. I will have the moral courage to make my actions consistent with my knowledge of right and wrong. Real integrity is doing the right thing, knowing that no one is going to know whether you did it or not. Oprah Winfrey. You're
1: listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, and I'm Donna Haraway, a retired professor in the History of Consciousness at the University of California at Santa Cruz.
0: Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today I'm speaking with Professor Lisa Tessman about when doing the right thing is impossible. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Now, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself,
1: Sure. So I teach at Binghamton University, which is a state university um in upstate New York, a few hours from New York City. And um, I teach in a program that specializes in social, political, ethical and legal philosophy. So my my corner is the ethics corner and I I work primarily in a particular kind of ethics, namely I like thinking about the conditions of actual moral life as opposed to idealized moral life. So I, I tend to look at conditions that are very adverse conditions, conditions of oppression, other kinds of um, conditions of adversity, and, and ask what kinds of moral choices we have to make under those kinds of conditions.
0: Was it that inspired your interest in when doing the right thing is impossible?
1: Well, the particular, I mean, this particular book is the second book on the topic that I've written. So my my motivation for writing this book is that the first book was written for more of a scholarly audience and with a lot of technical philosophy. And I, after I finished it, I decided I really wanted the ideas to be accessible to a wider audience. So i that's why I wrote this book, which is the first book I've written that was written for a general audience on the topic. But I guess I was interested in the topic based on what, for me, is a very strong intuitive sense that there are situations in which, despite the fact that it's not possible for us to do something, we ha- we you know we make the judgment that we must do it that we ha- that there is a moral requirement for us to do something regardless of the fact that we're unable to do it, and that goes against the kind of standard wisdom in Western moral philosophy based on the the phrase ought implies can, namely that one can't be required to do something if it's impossible to do it. And that has just always seemed wrong to me. So I set about trying to support that position and figure out why we sometimes make the judgment that we're required to do something despite it being impossible for us to do it.
0: Could you explain about moral dilemmas? Sure.
1: Sure. So a moral dilemma is kind of the most obvious sort of situation in which one can be required to do the impossible. So it's common to think about moral conflicts, where there's one thing that we're required to do and something else that we're required to do, and then they come into conflict with each other. You've made a promise to do one thing, but on your way to carry out that promise, you know, you come upon a person in great need and you're required to help somebody that you come across in need and now you can't keep your promise, something like that. So in the case of a moral conflict, sometimes you can just say, well, one of those requirements overrides the other. So the one that gets overridden is just canceled. It's kind of nullified by the fact that the two came into conflict, and now you're released from having to to fulfill it. But the difference between that kind of a conflict and a dilemma is that in a conflict that we'll call a moral dilemma, Even though you might be able to decide which of the two conflicting requirements to carry out based on, you know, one of them being weightier than the other, the one that you end up being unable to carry out doesn't just get cancelled. And so uh, a philosopher named Bernard Williams coined the phrase of there being some kind of a residue left over or a remainder left over from the moral requirement that is not fulfilled and that has now become impossible to fulfill to... Convey the sense that sometimes, as he put it, the ought that is not acted upon remains standing; it remains in effect, and that's what characterizes a dilemma. When there's a conflict, where in the resolution of the conflict, you're still required to do whichever of the two requirements you end up not being able to do because you did the other one instead.
0: Do you explain the difference between negotiable and non-negotiable moral requirements?
1: Right, so that distinction helps explain what makes something a dilemma rather than just an ordinary moral conflict. So if the two conflicting requirements are negotiable, then that means the overridden one can be canceled and it doesn't remain, and so you're not actually in a dilemma. If the requirements are non-negotiable, then it simply means you can't negotiate it away by overriding it by the other requirements, so it doesn't cancel out. And what makes something non-negotiable rather than negotiable is that the value that that requirement is protecting can't be substituted with some other value and it can't be compensated for by some other value so generally they're values that are unique and not interchangeable so for instance a human life is uniquely valuable if you know you have to kill one person to save five other people even though you might decide the right choice is saving five rather than one, it's not as if any of those five saved lives can substitute for the life that's lost. That life that was lost is irreplaceable. And because the value that's been lost was irreplaceable, then the the requirement not to kill is a non-negotiable requirement because it's protecting a value that can't be substituted for by whatever value came into conflict with it and that you ended up fulfilling instead. So in that case, if I had to sacrifice one life to save five others, in that kind of a conflict, it would be a dilemma because the requirement to protect that one life that I had to sacrifice remains standing. It doesn't get cancelled because it was a non-negotiable requirement to begin with.
0: Do you explain about the situation that occurred with Hurricane Katrina, and the moral decisions that had to be made?
1: Yeah, so this is an example that I use in the book to illustrate a dilemma. So this occurred in New Orleans. There was an enormous hurricane. Um, they called it Katrina. And there was the levees broke, and so there was a great deal of flooding in New Orleans. And what I focus on is the situation that occurred in one of the hospitals in New Orleans, um, Memorial Hospital, where the hospital became flooded, and there were a lot of people trapped in the hospital. In fact, many people had come to the hospital because they expected it to be a good place to take refuge in the storm. So patients and doctors and nurses, as well as all kinds of visitors, family members, and so on, were all trapped inside this hospital. And over the course of five days, they were trapped there, and they lost power. They ran out of food. Um, They ran out of medical supplies. Nothing was working. The toilets weren't working. The the electricity that they need to put people on, breathing apparatus and so on, everything was gone. So the nurses and doctors were attempting to take care of patients in conditions that were absolutely horrible and they they just couldn't take care of people adequately. And some evacuation began taking place slowly, but eventually they were faced with a situation where some rescuers came and police came and told them, you all have to be out by the end of the day, we're going to stop protecting this building, we're not going to come back and rescue anybody. And the, the doctors and, and nurses knew that they had some patients whom they couldn't evacuate, either because they simply couldn't be lifted or because they were too frail to move and they would die if they were to be moved. And many of these patients were in a condition where they, they couldn't give any consent. They might have been unconscious or they might have had dementia, or something like this, so they couldn't give consent. And so the doctors faced a choice. They could abandon the patients and they would die a slow and painful death alone, or they could give them lethal injections of morphine and other drugs that would hasten their death and and essentially would be a mercy killing. And it's very unclear what actually happened. There's still a lot of of debate about that because one of the doctors was criminally charged so there was a, a case about this. but. What I, I'm i not so interested in what they did because I think that no matter what they did, then it illustrates that they were in a dilemma where they were required to do two things. One is to not abandon the patients, and the other is to not kill the patients. And they had to do one or the other. So that's a classic example of a dilemma. And I think it's probable that they did engage in the mercy killings. And I I think that of the two options, that was the better option, so I'm not critical of them for having made the wrong decision, but rather the point is that even having made the right decision, they would have committed a wrongdoing, they would have killed patients, that they never would have done had they not been in that situation, and what I'm interested in there is the kind of aftermath of that, the living with having failed morally in a way that was unavoidable, um, which is quite different than avoidable failures. You know, if, if it had been a wrongdoing that they could have avoided, then they should have been held accountable. They should have been blamed for it. And blame is not appropriate in the case of an unavoidable failure. But the person who has navigated that kind of dilemma tends to judge themselves to have failed and feel regret and anguish and so on about that failure. And that's the piece of it that I'm most interested in
0: how and why do human beings construct morality so uh,
1: th- this question of how we construct morality i get into by trying to figure out how we could have come to ha- to make the judgment that we are impossibly required to do something so i think that morality is constructed rather than that it exists completely independently from any human evaluative activity like just out there in the world i think that morality comes from what human beings value and how what kinds of systems we create to actualize and protect those values and so morality is one of the things that humans have created or constructed in order to live good enough lives together human beings are an extremely social species So the way that we get along in the world is by cooperating together, and we're highly interdependent. But it's not as if we just have cooperative impulses. We also have self-interested or selfish impulses and motivations. So what morality does, kind of the function of morality, is to help balance these, to help balance the self-interested and the other-regarding or cooperative, or sometimes called pro-social motivations, so that we can successfully cooperate together, which is necessary for us to live well. So that's the the why do we construct morality. We do it because it's one of the mechanisms that we have for enabling us to cooperate well. And how we do it is, is a very complicated question. I mean, we do it in, in multiple ways, and I don't think that morality is just one thing. I think it's many, many different things, because there's so many different Mechanisms for us to use, to draw on, to cooperate well together. And the reason that I look at any of that, at, why, at how and why human beings do construct morality, is because I think that one of the things that we construct and that carries the authority of morality are these judgments that we can be required to do the impossible in certain situations.
0: What part does empirical psychology play?
1: well on the empirical moral psychology as opposed to kind of philosophical moral or philosophical ethics or moral, or moral psychology as it's practiced by philosophers what empirical psychology can do is study what human beings actually judge themselves to be morally required to do and it can study what actual human moral and immoral behavior is so philosophers tend to ask questions about what we ought to do and tend to ask questions about what we do do, or what we do judge that we ought to do. And many philosophers think these two have no relation, that because we can't directly derive an ought from an is, what we ought to do from what we do actually do, that they, they really have no relationship. And, and I reject that. I think they do have a relationship, precisely because I think we do construct morality. So we have to look at how we construct morality, in order to be able to say anything and critical about it. So empirical psychology, I draw on a lot of psychology in order to look at the processes through which we make moral judgments and look at things like moral motivation to understand why we might make the judgment that we can be impossibly required and also why we might want to say that that judgment has as much authority as other kinds of moral judgments that we make.
0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor Lisa Tessman about when doing the right thing is impossible. How do we go about making moral judgments?
1: So this is one of the things that we can learn from empirical psychologists, so Psychologists, cognitive psychologists, tell us that there are two cognitive processes through which we make our judgments, including moral judgments. Sometimes they call them System 1 and System 2. Where System 1 is the intuitive system and System 2 is the reasoning system. The intuitive system is automatic. It operates below the level of consciousness, so we can't consciously control it. And it's extremely fast. System 2 is the reasoning process. So anytime that we're making inferences or doing complex calculations, going through steps of reasoning, we're doing it slowly, we're doing it consciously, so we can control it and direct it, you know, consciously. And for a long time, both psychologists and philosophers have assumed that we make our moral judgments through a reasoning process. But when we study it empirically, it turns out that most people make their actual moral judgments through the intuitive process, the automatic process. Now, that doesn't mean that those judgments are necessarily right. I think that the process of constructing morality is not just a matter of making these quick intuitive moral judgments, because we are reflective creatures. We can step back from the judgments that we've made and reflect on them, and decide that we made a wrong judgment. So we can reject one judgment from the perspective of a different uh, judgment, sometimes called a second order judgment. So it's important to know that most of our moral judgments are made intuitively, but we also need to recognize that we can make our we can make our judgments through reasoning and we can use reasoning to reflect on and ultimately reject some of our other judgments, whether they're made intuitively or through reasoning most moral philosophers have adopted a model for how we arrive at authoritative moral judgments, and that process is known as reflective equilibrium. And the idea is that when we reflect on our moral judgments, we're aiming for a sort of a consistency, a coherence amongst the set of all of our judgments, whether they're particular judgments or very general principles, and that we weed out you know, whatever would be inconsistent with that set, sometimes changing the principle, sometimes changing the particular judgment until we arrive at a kind of a equilibrium. And I think that that picture isn't exactly right, because it's too rationalistic. And that actually, that process of making our second order judgment, that process itself can be either intuitive and automatic or reasoned. And we don't always aim for consistency that we tend to favor consistency but sometimes we have two judgments they're both in conflict with each other but we we hold each of them so strongly that we would rather give up consistency than give up either one of those judgments so if i think that ought implies can so i can only be required to do what's possible for me to do and yet say i'm one of those doctors in that situation in hurricane katrina i believe i must save the patient and i can't save the patients. You know, the only way to hold on to that intuitive judgment that despite being unable to save them, I must save them, I have to live with a kind of a inconsistency between those judgments and the principle that God implies can. And I think that that kind of judgment can be constructed as authoritative just as much as uh, our other judgments can. So my claim in the book is that it's through the intuitive process as opposed to being through the reasoning process, that the judgment of impossible moral requirement gets made, but that we shouldn't dismiss it by virtue of having not been made through this reasoning process. When we reason, and if we insert the principle that ought implies can into the reasoning, we end up having to reject the claim that there are any impossible moral requirements. But since we can arrive at that judgment in a different way, namely through an automatic or intuitive process, in some way it doesn't matter that the reasoning process has a way of eliminating that judgment. So I basically argue against the rationalist philosophers who deny that there is such a thing as an impossible moral requirement, but not simply by saying intuition's rule, rather We are very complicated creatures We human beings who need both of these processes, the intuitive and the rational, to arrive at our moral judgments. Many of our intuitive judgments are, we, we will want to reject. For instance, things like implicit bias happen as a result of an intuitive process. And here is a case where we can reason and intervene in our intuitive judgments and come to reject a judgment that we might decide is biased. So I'm not claiming that we should never intervene in a rational way with our intuitive judgments, but that we also shouldn't necessarily reject a judgment just because it's been made intuitively. And that's what I I think is the status of the judgments of impossible moral requirements.
0: What is the connection with evolutionary theory?
1: Well, evolutionary theory can help us make sense of why morality would have evolved. And so for a constructivist, for someone who thinks that morality is constructed, we need a story about why human beings ever, you know, would construct morality. And evolutionary theory answers that question. So one branch of evolutionary theory, which is called multi-level selection theory, tells us that selection takes place both at a group level and an individual level. So briefly, cooperative groups tend to produce more offspring than non-cooperative groups. And that explains how traits that tend to lead to cooperative behavior, for instance, a tendency to be very high in empathy, get passed on to the next generation more than traits that lead to individually selfish behavior. So, without going too much into the multi-level selection theory, it basically tells us that the function, purpose that morality serves is to help groups cooperate, and that it makes sense that Groups have become cooperative because the evolutionary story is that that is adaptive. It is adaptive to live as a member of a highly cooperative group, and so those traits survived. So the fact that it evolved isn't what makes it right. What makes something right really is just our judgments about it's being right or it's being good or it's being valuable. But we have evolved to judge certain things to be valuable, because those are the things that help to help us cooperate well together in groups. And that still competes with self-interested motives and the ways that uh, adaptation can take place at an individual level. So um, it's not that we are wholly cooperative, but that multi-level selection theory explains both our, our self-interested and our other regarding sorts of traits.
0: How is it that sometimes moral wrongdoing is just unavoidable?
1: Right, so... Putting this all together, moral wrong, we often judge that moral wrongdoing is unavoidable. Whenever we're in a situation where what we judge to be the right thing to do is something that we can't do, right? So saving the patients would be the right thing to do, but uh, I can't. That's when we make a judgment that moral wrongdoing is unavoidable. And then, to put it together with the stuff I've been talking about, about the construction of morality, the question is, what kind of weight, what kind of authority should we give to this judgment that moral wrongdoing is unavoidable um, in this situation? And my claim is that we construct the authority of morality in these complicated ways that involve both intuitive judgments and reason judgments, that involves a lot of our psychological traits like empathy and so on. and And so if we look at the way that human beings actually construct morality, it's nothing like the picture that rationalist moral philosophers have given us about what gives a judgment moral authority. And so I'm rejecting the rationalist claim that a judgment can only carry moral authority if it has this kind of consistency with all of the other judgments that we might make. And that gives me room to include judgments that we are impossibly required to do something, or that wrongdoing is unavoidable, to include those amongst the judgments that carry authority, that carry uh, what a philosopher named Margaret Walker has called the specifically moral authority of morality, the kind of authority that we imbue those
0: judgments with. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already discussed?
1: I I think You've asked questions that cover it really well, so not so much on this topic. I mean, I guess the only thing I would add is that taking this idea that we can be impossibly morally required to do a variety of things helps understand why we might be feeling awful a lot of the time about our own moral lives, because in the world that we live in, I think that dilemmas are extremely common. I think, you know, as we... we, see injustices, as we see all kinds of disasters unfolding, whether they're caused by climate change, by a breakdown of democratic norms, by all kinds of things that we may see as going wrong in our world, those are creating for us situations where what we take to be the right thing to do may simply not be among the options in front of us. And I I think that that in our actual world that we live in, that tends to happen a lot. And we need a concept like unavoidable failure to make sense of how we feel when we are, are living our moral lives in that kind of a world.
0: Do you have any future study plans within this field?
1: Yeah. I mean, at some point, I need to move on and think about an entirely new topic. But one thing I'm still doing on this topic is I've been working together with a colleague from Norway, Jan Helder Solbach, who is a medical ethicist and a physician also, and, and he has a grant proposal that I'm working on with him to look at unavoidable moral wrongdoing in the context of medical ethics and drawing on ancient Greek sources, because they were very tuned in to the ways in which wrongdoing is sometimes unavoidable, uh, particularly in the genre of tragedy, but we're also going to be looking at Greek comedy. So I'm hoping that we get that grant and get to work on that project. It's very collaborative and will involve a lot of people with different specializations. So I hope to be able to bring my work into collaboration with with a bunch of other people on this.
0: That sounds good. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And I've been speaking to Professor Lisa Tessman about when doing the right thing is impossible. Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought.